Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing today? Well, um, I'm actually, you know, I wasn't calling for Dave Tippett to be fired. I wasn't on, like lots of people were and have been for some time. I wasn't in that camp, although I was thinking if they lost the next game, you can't wait too long to make a move. And it, and it's been apparent in the last few games, something's gone. Like the problems with the team became bigger problems. They fell mm-hmm. apart defensively. They started to leak grade A shots and five alarm shots at an alarming rate in the last three games, which includes a win over Washington, which they really didn't deserve. So no surprise. I will say that no surprise. Um, Bruce, we'll, in this, so in this podcast, we're going to do a few things. We're going to both give our good thing and a bad thing about Dave Tippett overall. We'll, um, um, we'll look at, uh, which players are, we're going to look at the Jay Woodcroft and, and how he will change the team and which players are going to benefit and which are not going to benefit from this move. Mm-hmm. Finally, we'll go through some of the Twitter comments and discuss those. So Let's start with the good thing, something like just overall, what the good things that you might say, you know, if you were to defend Dave Tippett today about his reign as Oilers coach, what would you say, Bruce? Uh, Well, I would talk in general terms about uh, uh, the massive improvement that Edmonton specialty teams uh, enjoyed uh, during the first 2.3 seasons of his uh, of his time here, uh, power play led the league uh, uh, both years and was uh, was soaring number one above everybody uh, through November uh, of this season, and which you could say, well, that's personnel and 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 give some credit, you know, to the natural goal scorers and you know playmakers that others can deploy on their power play. What shockingly was to me was how well the penalty kill came around. After dismal performances for years, that uh, the PK went in the top ten in the NHL for two years, and uh, uh, I think they were as high as second one of those years, and about eighth or ninth the other. And then this year they were they were like first in net efficiency, uh, shorthanded goals uh, minus power play goals against. They, you know they were that high up, and then suddenly both units collapsed in the last two months and that was a big part of his downfall but you know he he had fixed that problem for an extended period of time and it's still kind of hard to get my brain around how both units could could uh, fall apart at the same time but uh, that was uh, uh, that was a very strong part of his performance that even strength the team you know they never even got to fully break even on uh, at even that five on five but it was their special teams that at least made them playoff contenders, if not Stanley Cup contenders, which they definitely were not. So my good thing is just to go back to where the Oilers were before he became the head coach. And we had been through two really rough seasons yep. under Todd McClellan. And then halfway through McClellan's next season or quarter way through, Ken Hitchcock took over, had a good stretch and then cratered as well. Those Oilers teams um, 
under McClelland and Hitchcock were, were trending down. They were getting weaker and worse as it went along. Mm-hmm. Um, their points percentages in both years were abysmal. Their, uh, they had uh, 78 points in 82 games in 2017-18. And then they had mm-hmm. 79 points in 82 games in 2018-19. This is after making the playoffs in 2016-17 and advancing to the second round. You know, that it would have been interesting to see what Todd McCullough can do in retrospect if Andre Sekera and Oscar Kleffbaum, his two best defensemen, hadn't been injured in that season series against Anaheim and were never the same after that. I, I just think it was like, you know, fundamentally altered the course of the Oilers franchise yeah. and brought on a lot of a lot of criticism, which perhaps in retrospect was overdone when really it, it came down to you lose your two top lefty and you're going to be struggling for a while. So anyway, he, there was talk of that summer of, you know, after Hitchcock was, was you know, when, when they looked like they were going to replace Hitchcock, there was talk Connor McDavid was really restless um, from credible observers like Elliot Friedman. Mm-hmm. And um, so to, to stabilize the franchise, the decision was made to bring in very experienced people in Ken Holland and Dave Tippett. And, you know, I think some people would argue that um, Holland has actually been the lesser performer of the two. Dave Tippett uh, fulfilled his duty much better than Holland did. And and I'm not going to agree or disagree with that. I'm going to say that's a fair and reasonable critique, though. And that's if anyone's saying that, they're not crazy. That's a fair comment. You can make a strong argument for that. So Tippett comes in and he turns things around almost at once. You know, he, he takes a team which has been losing at a, at a you know, just losing way too much. And in his first year, in 71 games, shortened because of COVID, they get 83 points. They're one of, they're, they're uh, well on their way to making the playoffs. I think they're second in the in their division when the yeah. season crashes down. Um, the scoring chance differential is we, we, you know, we look at grade A shots to rate the team. It, it hadn't changed much, but the goal differential improved a bit. Um, in uh, the McClellan Hitchcock year, they were 2.84 and 3.3 against. Tippett's first year, they're 3.14 and just three against. So they moved from negative goal differential of a half goal a game to even, pretty much even, a little bit on the positive side under Tippett. Mm-hmm. So just a just a major and unexpected turnaround. People weren't expecting the orders to make the playoffs that year. It, it was really a downtime, and people thought this might take a while. And he he came in here and he he got him going in the right direction right away. Then came COVID and that hideous, ridiculous playing around with Chicago where the orders just sucked. And, um, you know, there's now talk that, you know, Clefbaum was badly injured. Larson was not really keen to be there, perhaps like there was there's there's talk that, you know, they, they weren't they weren't right. And they certainly didn't yeah. look right as a team. Anyway, so they, they come in, COVID's still around, they come into 2021 season, and, and they're even better in the Canadian division. They get 72 points in 56 games, which is a 64%, 64 points percentage, up from 58%. And their grade A shots differential just takes off. They go to 11.6 grade A shots for per game and just 9.8 grade A shots against per game. This is after being underwater just a little bit the previous two seasons. And their goals differential suddenly is instead of just being even, they're they're plus half a goal a game. So he's taken a team that was minus half a goal a game, and in two seasons he's taken it to, to plus half a goal a game. 
full goal difference. That is a huge achievement for Dave Tippett and his coaching staff and the players of the Edmonton Oilers. But again, Bruce, it's all down the toilet on a certain level because they go in and they lose four straight games to Winnipeg and it feels like crap on a certain level. Even even though those games are close, the Oilers don't come close to playing their A game in the playoffs when they need to do so. So it's two years of just actually pretty remarkable regular season improvement um, and then playoff disappointment. So we're kind of wondering what's going to happen next. You know, um, um, you could have glass half full, glass half empty. He comes in this season and for the first 21 games, they're 16 and five, best record in the NHL. Their goal differential at that point is one plus, I think it's about plus one goal a game um, if you round it up. And yeah, point nine. So he's taken, okay, from negative 0.5 to plus 0.5 to plus 0.9. Again, this is just like, wow, Dave Tippett. That is some coaching. So if anyone wonders why fans like me, me and others were kind of, maybe we shouldn't be so quick to fire Dave Tippett and give this guy a chance to turn things around. I think those are actually pretty strong indicators of someone who knows what the hell they're doing and righted this ship for a got it going in a, in a hugely positive direction what happens since then though is is remarkable the collapse that we've seen has been remarkable so let's get into the that's my good thing what let's get into the bad thing what's your bad thing about tippet bruce well i was going to cite the two playoff collapses when the oilers was heavy favorites won one game out of eight and lost the last six in a row but you kind of covered that off uh, so let's just get more into the collapse uh, in, in recent times. And, and uh, what I've seen that a, a team that seems to have lost the plot, and obviously a lot of that is on the players, but a lot of it is on the, you know, the, um, the mesh between the players and the, and the, and, uh, and the coaching and that something isn't clicking. And, and clearly there was finally enough evidence for uh, Ken Holland to, to take action. Uh, but their defensive coverage, David, and I'll cite you two recent games. Edmonton leading Washington 3 nothing uh, early in the game, and they're on the road, and they've already basically got enough goals to win, although it wouldn't hurt to get another one, obviously. And that game turned into a track meet. While Washington tried up the, up the play, and back and forth they went, scoring chances galore, most of them for Washington. They do come all the way back and tie it. And then a, a gift from the hockey gourds, the Oilers got the shorthanded goal and, and and squeak out the win just before the All-Star break. Well, the first game after the All-Star break, Oilers are the home team. Vegas comes in here. They get a 3 nothing lead. And they absolutely put that game to bed, put the fans to sleep, but just take over and, and Edmonton, you know, it's it's just a matter of them working down the clock and eventually running it right out with a shutout victory. And just the contrast between how Edmonton handled a 3 nothing lead on the road against a good team and how Vegas did the same. And I'm thinking, you know, one of these teams has got what it takes to, you know, to, to win games, to play your advantage and win it. You know, the Oilers, on one of the rare occasions that they did get the lead, didn't know what to do with it. And so that, uh, <clears throat> but more 
generally the defensive covers the wide open spaces. The Oilers would be one and done, and the other team would make one pass, and the next thing you know, there'd be some defenseman scrambling from the wrong side, trying to cut off some forward on the other team that's racing down the ice with the puck and with support. And it didn't seem like there's any sort of defensive system to uh, take away the middle of the ice. And it's uh, especially in the neutral zone. And it, it, uh, uh, it just was going from bad to worse. And with these two recent bad, two basically stinkers on their home ice on consecutive nights finally forced the hand of, uh, of uh, Holland to take action. Yeah, these last few games have been really bad. They have their defense. They obviously have a defensive system, but it's completely broken down. They're giving mm-hmm. up endless odd man rushes. Um, <sighs> who knows what they're supposed to be doing? It's it's chaos in their own zone. Often, like with players, you know, you, you, they're using the you know obviously they're, they're like F one, F two, F three, but they're always confused about who's F one and F two and F three. As far as I'm concerned, like like honestly, Bruce, they they're they're not mm-hmm. serious about it. They're not checking off like, oh, you are F1. Okay, you're going to stay there and do your freaking job in in that role. They're shifting out and moving over and come on. Like, they're not communicating. They're not a cohesive defensive team and they were being ripped to shreds. And it started on the PK, the seam passes, and now it's moved to even strength and two-on-one rushes all the time. So this is a team that's progressively getting worse defensively. Now, our grade A shots totals show that to some extent. Um, in the first 21 games, they were giving up 12.3 grade A shots per game. That's now moved to 13 grade A shots per game. So this is not a huge increase, right? It's But I think, and we we, we haven't gotten into charting this, but I think next year we're going to, because I think it's important enough to do this. Within the, grade a, within the grade A shot parameter, there's yeah. grade A shots, which go in about 25% of the time, according to between 25 and 30% of the time, according to what we've seen over the years. That's the average, about 27, I think, 27%. We've been tracking these grade-A shots. We've been tracking scoring chances for a long time, but grade-A shots in particular for about six or seven seasons. But the five alarm shots go in about, I'm guessing, about 40% of the time. And the Oilers, like last night, there were six or seven five alarm shots on Mike Smith. And you just, you know, half, you know, almost half the time they're going to end up in goals. And you, I, I like we don't have the number because because we we just kind of track it. I'm starting to write it down, but we're not tracking it systematically, and and we're going to do that. But I think there's been more of those kind of chances against uh, in recent games that have been on net. Where you know Mike Smith led in four goals last night, Bruce. All of those I think, or almost all of those, were five alarm chances, like three out of four, and he saved another three or four five alarm chances. So. Um, yeah, they fell apart. So my bad thing is that, I guess it's the same as yours. It's this defensive deterioration, which Mm -hmm. it's, he can't, he, maybe he can't control the goaltending tippet, but he had, he, he, that this is under his, you know, he is the coach. They have Mm goaltending coaches. So yeah, there's, there's some, you know, the goaltenders are on him as well. And he, a lot of people are mad at him because he started Mike Smith in back-to-back games and that was the end of them. But he really does have full control over the defensive play of the Oilers and and the defensive mindset of the Oilers. And, you know, I just, what I was noticing was from the top to the bottom of that roster, there was defensive, lack of defense, defensive commitment and attitude on that team. 
in the last in that last handful of games. And going into this stretch of games, which is so compact and so uh, where you can't afford to slide because you're in the battle for your playoff life, you can't have that. It's just not acceptable. And it was a big enough thing on top of this terrible recent losing streak where they went from a a 76% point percentage to a 37% point percentage, like less than half, yeah. like cut it in half. So on top of this losing streak, two months of losing, and then defensive meltdown, mm-hmm. I, I think they, like, I can see why they made the move. I, you know, I wasn't, I, again, I wasn't pushing for it. But last night it occurred to me watching the game, like, oh. you can't have this. It can't go on. So... Yeah, well, I nearly named Tippett as my bad thing in the podcast last night, uh, as I did uh, uh, in one podcast uh, maybe three weeks ago during the depth of the previous losing slide. And uh, I just thought those back-to-back stinkers on home ice, uh, you know, when they don't have a full rink. And I mean, right now, of course, they had the restrictions and so on, but they're going to have to find put fans back in that building and they're going to have to deliver a better product and and just showing signs that a they're aware and doing something about it whether it's the right thing or not and of course i'm not sure we mentioned yet that they they not only uh was dave tippett uh, dismissed uh but so too was assistant coach uh, defensive and penalty kill coach jim playfair and that both jay woodcroft and dave manson have been called up from the miners effectively uh, from their similar positions to fill those two slots. So it's going to create a hole in Bakersfield, which is a minor concern, but the much bigger one is what's it going to do uh, here in in uh, in Edmonton. Uh, but I, I like the idea of it not just replacing one man, but you know bringing up a tandem that has been successful at the at the minor league level. And these uh, guys, as you've mentioned already, that have uh, uh, experience with uh, uh, a lot of the Oilers players and, you know, the knowledge of the guys that are in the system and guys that, uh, honestly, I'm not sure Dave Tippett gave the full chance to a couple of these fellows that uh, Woodcroft and Manson know pretty well, and they may figure out a better place to uh, to uh, slot them. And it'll be a little bit less... Well, we'll go with we'll go with the veterans. My gut says go with the veterans. Go with the veterans, and a little more. Let's uh, let's uh, add a little bit of youthful enthusiasm uh, into the mix, and uh, uh, I think that's uh, that's something maybe we can talk about a little more. Woodcroft, this is the like they had a chance to do this in 2014-50 when they promoted when they had Todd Nelson as the interim coach, yep. and suddenly Anton Lander's game took off. Uh, yeah. at the NHL level would you know Nelson was familiar with the player yeah, and his absolutely. game he just absolutely looked like an NHL hockey player he did Todd McClellan comes in and, and Anton Landers out the window his game deteriorates he never gets the chances that he got previously and so I, I so there's a you could have a debate should they have brought in a veteran coach like Mike Babcock I don't know Close who else Julien was one yeah. name that was out there yeah, so he's in so, China so the, right now <laughs> You could have done the veteran coach thing, mm-hmm. or you can do this with Jay Woodcroft. Mm-hmm. I like, you know, if Jay Woodcroft was a hockey player right now, Bruce, we'd be talking about him being ripe or overripe. He's been 13 years mm-hmm. in, as an NHL assistant, a co- assistant coach to Mike Babcock, yes. 
and Todd McClellan in hugely successful programs in Detroit and San Jose. He's certainly paid his dues and knows the NHL inside out. He know, and here's the really cool thing: because he was an assistant coach under McClellan, he he's already familiar with and has coached personally coached players like Connor McDavid, Leon Draisaitl, Ryan Nugent Hopkins, Darnell Nurse, Chris Russell, Zach Cassian, and Yessa Puliyarvi. So many of the key the, the the key leadership group they know him, mm-hmm. he knows them, he's coached them. It's it's not a total outsider. But the thing I like best about this is. When you, I, I think the the new coaches and or uh, when they've changed GMs and coaches, they've undersold some of the assets within the organization, and those players haven't gotten a proper chance. Jay Woodcroft knows the players in this organization probably better than any coach on earth. Like in terms of knowing all of these players, what they, who they are, what they can bring, what they can't bring. So from the from Connor McDavid, you know, from the very top player in Edmonton to the very lowest player in Bakersfield. He knows them all pretty much. Pretty much. There's a small group in Edmonton that he doesn't know. But other than that, he knows them all. So for players like Tyler Benson, Evan Bouchard, William Loggison, Ryan McLeod, Cutter Yamamoto, and Stuart Skinner, Philip Brobery, now Dylan Holloway, he knows all of these guys. And yeah. they are definitely going to get a proper shake. If, if, if Woodcroft senses, for instance, that Brobery's ready for the NHL, that will happen. Might happen anyway because Duncan Keith's out, right? It's it's yeah. if he's out, um, could be the perfect time. But we're not going to see players overlooked. If Tyler Benson doesn't make it now in the Edmonton Oilers, it's because he's not good enough. I think no, it's not because the head coach wanted to go with Kyle Turris and Colton Sevier. It's because yeah. So and Devin Shore, yeah, fair yeah. enough. So I just. I really like the move from that perspective. Although if they had hired a veteran coach, if they had hired a veteran coach, I don't know what I would have thought about it. Cause I would have thought Woodcroft got shafted honestly, cause he's had tremendous success in Bakersfield three, three out of four years plus 600 hockey team won the championship as it, as it was last season. Nope. I would have felt, I would have felt bad for Jay Woodcroft and that that was that there was something wrong maybe with the orders organization that they overlooked the talent like that and didn't, didn't give them an opportunity. So I'm excited about this young coach coming in, new generation of coach, video, former video coach, versed in analytics coming in and giving and having this opportunity. What Are you thumbs up or thumbs down on this? Oh, yeah. Uh, da, uh, very much a data-driven guy as well. And he's got um, – um, yeah, I, I'm thumbs up. I, I've, I've, I argued for Woodcroft getting uh, the – chance in Bakersfield in 2018 when um, uh, Chiarelli cleared the decks of, uh, of McClellan's assistant coaches, uh, let a couple go at that time, brought in Goulson and uh, Playfair both, uh, as I recall. Uh, but rather than dumping Jay Woodcroft, he gave him a fresh start within the Bakersfield organization. I thought that was a hell of a good idea at the time, and I've seen not a single thing since that made me think otherwise. It was one of Trelli's, in fact, it was his single best move in 2018-19 when his reign imploded in Edmonton. And Woodcroft, uh, I hear him on the radio basically every week, and I just love his approach. And he he's a for starters, he's a gentleman. He's never once thrown a player under the bus that I've heard. He's always talking about the positive. This is what this guy needs. These are areas where he needs to improve, but he talks about the, you know, the weaknesses of a player as a learning opportunity as opposed to, you know, and I'm not saying tip it through a bunch of players under the bus, but I, I like Woodcroft's uh, way of uh, 
of personal handling. Now, whether that works at the same level with the, you know the bigger talents and and presumably egos at the NHL level, we'll see. But it'll be a breath of fresh air, in in my opinion. Uh, and uh, he, you know. He worked with some of these pretty important players at the transition level. Like he coached both Jesse Pugliarvi and Kyle Yamamoto in the NHL as assistant coach. And then he coached both of those players as the head coach down in uh, Bakersfield because they were doing the yo-yo thing. I mean, it was Jay, uh, Jay Woodcroft who coached Kyle Yamamoto up uh, to where he got recalled after Christmas in 2019 and came in and made a huge impact on the team at that time. And maybe that's a voice Kyle Yamamoto needs to hear again these days while he's struggling through what's been pretty difficult times and, and uh, uh, you know, struggling a little bit to score and, and uh, uh, less popular in the fan base. You know, there's, you know, a little, a little positive boost for that guy. And Tyler Benson, man, oh, man, if anybody knows what Tyler Benson can do, it's got to be Jay Woodcroft. Yeah, who had him down there for three years. I think he was the leading scorer on his team, uh, two of the three. Uh, and he was, uh, you know, he knows what kind of player he is. Well, here in Edmonton, I think Tyler Benson's last game was December, or sorry, January 5th in Toronto because they were short of players. He played well. He had a bunch of hits. He was in people's faces. Since then, nothing, not even a sniff of an opportunity as they've added, you know, guys coming back from injury and so on. And I mean, last night the, the Oilers went with the exact same, uh, wasn't it all 18 skaters? So in fact, all 19 guys, they changed the lines a little bit, but they didn't change any of the players uh, after the stinker loss to Vegas. And they guess what? They came out and they had another stinker loss with the exact same group of players. And meanwhile, you got these guys sitting up there in the, in the press box, uh, and, you know, Stuart Skinner, I mean, uh, I'll be surprised if Stuart Skinner is not the starting goalie tomorrow night. What do you think after what happened these last two nights? Could well be, although, you know, he's coming in and Mike Smith is the the starter. And he might is want he? to. He didn't. Yeah. Know, his last game he won was on October 16th. Oh, we'll see. Four months I, ago. We'll see. We'll see, Bruce. <laughs> you know, he's if, you're asking me, if you're asking me, if you're asking me who I think he'll start. I think he'll start Mike Smith. Okay. So let's have it. That'll be interesting. Won his last game in the NHL and he hasn't lost a game for Woodcroft in the AHL all season long. Like, you know, I think that's a guy that's going to maybe get a, a different lease on life. And if, if they're, if they're looking to change things up a bit, I mean, a lot of these guys are locked in. It's not like they have uh, the, two lines of players that can be replaced because of contract situations and everything else. But I do think that, uh, that the young players and, uh, you know, guys like Ryan McLeod, who to tip its credit, he was working McLeod in and giving him different opportunities at different positions. But uh, 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 I think Woodcroft will reinforce that. And, uh, I, you know, the young defensemen that are bubbling under, well, both Tippett and Dave Manson, or uh, sorry, both Woodcroft and Dave Manson, will be, uh, 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 you know, in their corner. And, I mean, obviously they have to perform on the ice, but I think they'll be given more opportunity to do what they can on the ice. And they will have the head start of knowing Woodcroft's system uh, better than some of these uh, old pros that uh, Ken Holland has brought in that are filling the bottom six in Edmonton. 
The graybeard spruce. The graybeard. Graybeard. Gray I, I think that was this last year's term. Yeah. My prediction is we will see Benson in the lineup. Mm-hmm. We'll see Benson in the lineup. We'll see mm-hmm. um, Ryan McLeod, obviously. We may see Cooper Marodi called up or or Griffith, Seth Griffiths mm-hmm. called up. I don't think we'll see Skinner in that. I, I, I see Woodcroft as being a traditional team guy where players mm-hmm. have to earn their way. And he may think that Mike Smith has earned that first start under him based on past record. I think he's quite respectful of the pecking order on the team. Woodcroft, mm-hmm. he's not, this isn't Dallas Aikens coming in here and right. kicking over tables oh, and fair. taking away the donuts. This is, <laughs> this is Jay Woodcroft coming in. He's a different breed of cat. And I, he's a very calm and respectful person. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I'm going to bet on, I'm going to bet on Mike Smith. We'll see who's right. All right. Uh, Bruce, oh. um, let's, let's go through um, what some of the Twitter reactions and we'll each do three. We've picked them out already. I can start because I've got mine lined up here. Okay. Okay. Um, athletic and you can get yours ready. Athletic hockey writer, Daniel Nugent Bowman, um, who does a fine job of covering the team for the athletic. He just goes with a quote for his tweet and it's from Ken Holland. And it says it's from a, it's just a month ago, January 11th, Ken Holland quote, you, you can't just keep whipping through coaches unquote. And some people have noticed, noted, I think this is Nugent Hopkins. Is it his 11th coach in 12 years or 12th coach in 11 years? <laughs> One or the other. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a not, lot of coaches. It's a lot of coaches. You know, I, I think, you know, I, I, I know you don't want to whip through too many coaches, but what is the shelf life of an NHL coach? People are making a lot of this uh, in terms of the, Connor McDavid having, what is it, four coaches in seven years. But the shelf life of an NHL coach ain't long. Oh, and it's not long. This isn't that unusual for the NHL. And and you know what else? Going up through minor hockey, these players, most of them had a new coach every second, every year. They would have had a different coach, except when they got to major junior. Maybe when they got to an organization, they would have had a coach two years in a row. So it's not like suddenly, oh, my God, I got a new coach. Like the world's gone haywire. It's completely what they're used to throughout their minor hockey career. Um, it's what most of them are used to every second year or third year in the NHL. This isn't that unusual. They've essentially, like in terms of Connor McDavid, he essentially has gone from Todd McClellan with a brief interlude of Hitchcock to Dave Tippett. He's essentially had two coaches for the vast majority of his NHL career. This isn't crazy shambletrons. This is normal business in the NHL. So, is it, now, Holland, the interesting thing about Holland in saying this, Bruce, as we know, he has never fired a coach um, in midseason. I'm going to give Ken Holland credit for going against his preconceived notions and what he's always done. You can teach an old dog new tricks. This is a different situation. This is a, the salary cap era where players have much more freedom of movement, where winning now is more important than ever. Where you, Sorry, you can't have as much patience as you, maybe you did um, in uh, – in the past, you got to move, and he moved. I, I think I, I'm going to so I'm going to say thumbs up for Ken Holland and going against what he said. And you know, just because you said something doesn't mean you have to stick to it if it's not the right idea a month later. And I think that's where we're at. Yeah. Well, who knows where the, the where the, the command came from? I mean, in my mind, uh, I, ear, I can I can hear. A, late night phone call from Daryl Cates to Bob Nicholson saying this isn't good enough that the, the, the natives are restless that are paying to watch these games and seeing our team get thumped. We've got to do something 
Bob and and, and it's trickling a, down from from there. But I mean, who knows? Is, uh, is more my point. Yeah, that's a good point. Bruce is like, Kenny, we're not selling any Bobby Nix burgers, and we're not going to either if you don't start yeah. winning. So yeah. So anyway, that yeah, but it 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 wasn't working. And yeah. uh, going with going with a fresh voice with inside knowledge of the team uh, over, um, you know, bringing in some complete o- outsider like, say, John Tortorella. Can you imagine bringing him in here? Or, you know, uh, I mean, I, I, stuff would happen. But I think I think Woodcroft and Manson have a have an inside track on on where to go. And they have an established system that many of their players know. And they have, uh, uh, well, well, we'll see where that goes. What's uh, your tweet, Bruce? Let's mine is from Oilers fan Mary Lonberg, who is has a Swedish name, but she is a Finn, and Lost she certainly and follows. Follows, yeah, yeah. There you go. Who follows <laughs> the? Uh, uh, we should ask her. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway. <laughs> Uh, the Bergberry controversy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, she she is a, uh, a staunch supporter of Yesipuliarvi and also of Mikko Koskinen. Anyway, she says, I'm thinking some irony here, or is it poetic justice? Mikko Koskinen kept Tippett working, but Mike Smith got him fired. And to elaborate on that, I think she's thinking of two specific games uh, where Mikko Koskinen came up with his game of the year to beat Calgary on uh, Hockey Night in Canada about three weeks ago to end the Oilers' seven-game losing streak, which was at the, the end of a homestand where they'd already lost the first two, and uh, and if, uh, and, and uh, uh, Koskinen basically stole that 5-3 win over Calgary on January 22nd, I think it was. So not that long ago. And then he went on the, the roll, he played every game but one in that 5-0-1-1 streak that seemed to secure Tippett's job. And then Mike Smith came back, played one game, lost it. And then the very next night, he went in, told the coach he was starting. And the uh, coach said, OK, Mike, you're starting. And to an outsider, like that one said, who's who's actually in charge here? Like that's, you know, starting a 39, any goalie in back-to-back is, is uh, uh, goes against the the current conventional wisdom in the NHL, but a 39-year-old guy who's been struggling with injuries all year, who actually was last night in the third period having struggling to get up after going down to make saves, and he's right back in the net the very next night. I can guarantee you 100% that Stuart Skinner would have started last night's game Yeah, under any other coach, but certainly yeah. under Jay, Jay Woodcroft. I mean, we can talk about tomorrow night with a day of rest, but last night, like, that was, and was that the last straw that finally said, geez, we, you know, this guy is so loyal to his veterans to a fault, and look where it's getting them. Nowhere. They're going nowhere, but spinning their wheels. Yeah, the, and the tourist signing was pinned, you know, there's another veteran that was pinned on Tippett's recommendation, and certainly Tippett's stubborn use of the player um, backs that up. Bruce, I'm going to go to a, at B. Kerlock, I think. Mm-hmm. Um so you pointed out this tweet to me. This is a, a longtime Oilers fan, but also someone who watches the Condors, and he's watching them very closely. So we're going to take. Oh. We I, I'm not familiar with the, with this tweeter, but you are. 
and so he has quite a detailed breakdown of the systems play that used that was used in Bakersfield this year. So we're going to run through it, and I'll stop a few times for us to discuss. Sure. And so he's saying that in Bakersfield, there's a much different structure than what we've seen at Edmonton. And quote, assuredly, they will go with a 2-1-2 narrow forecheck where F3 stays high in the middle of the ice. This will be a challenge for uh, 97 and 29 McDavid and Dreisaitl. McLeod will get this quick as he's the only one doing it now. So essentially, when they're forechecking, the, the, you know, the, the, the last forward end will be high up on the ice. There's not going to be three men down low. So, so um, what, what that allows you to do, if the defenseman pinches, you have someone there right away to cover. And, and this has clearly been a massive problem on the Oilers, where they're not getting forwards covering the defensemen when they pinch. And it's, it's been a mess. So um, now his suggestion that 97 and 29 will, will struggle with this, I think is a fair comment from Kerlock. Um, he, you know, they are offensive dynamos who, who put offense first. And if they're asked to religiously defend and to do this, if they're F3, to just, you know, no variation, man. You're on this team. You're going to cover. You're going to stay high. Um, that'll be interesting. But I think it's the right move. The, yeah. He goes on to say, quote, the neutral zone will oscillate between 113 and 131. The choice seems to be opponent dependent. Again, this will be a challenge for McDavid and Dreisaitl, but a massive help to the defensive core who simply face too many large gaps currently and who don't have the foot speed to handle the attacks. A very adept comment. And I also agree with his comment about McDavid and Dreisaitl. Like, if you're going to play a more systematic form of defense, um, it's going to be all the offensive players have to rein it in and put that first, put that ahead of their hunger for, for point scoring. Now, they might have a receptive McDavid and Dreisaitl right about now yeah. because they're not having much success and, they're, and the team is getting crushed defensively. Yeah. So now is the time. If you're going to bring in a defensive system, Jay Woodcroft, don't wait. This yeah. is the moment. You got, yeah. you, know, you got the hammer. Use it and, and work with these players, all of them, from the top of the bottom to the, ro- top to the bottom of the roster. Any thoughts, Bruce? Yeah, I wish they had some practice time like they would have had if this move had taken place after, say, the Toronto game or uh, the Ottawa game. Uh, but now they're, you know, Woodcroft arrives tomorrow and the game is tomorrow night. Like, uh, but uh, so it's going to be a little bit hard to implement. Uh, but I'd, li- I'd like to hope, and uh, surely uh, this isn't this isn't much of a reach that McDavid and Drysaddle. Uh, great offensive players as they are, are hungrier for wins than they are for points. And if playing in a different structure allows them to actually have the puck more, uh, they'll see the benefits of it. And it's, um, you know, Bruce Kerlock, his uh, his comments about the uh, uh, decor facing too many large gaps and not having the foot speed to handle is just absolutely bang on point. We see that every night. We do. Tyson Berry race, try, racing to get back, struggling to get back. CC oh. struggling. Evan Bouchard. It's just endless. Okay, yeah. he goes on to say the D zone will be Jeez. most fascinating oh, yeah. because Woodcroft and Manson expect uh, center support low at all times. This runs completely counter to the order's D zone. He's a first man back approach that devolves into a swarm quite often. He oh, predicts. <laughs> he says Drysaddle will be excellent. McDavid will be challenged. I think his analysis is correct. Like, and I talked about this earlier, where they're caught. Like right now, the orders are constantly switching off they they go you know f1 should cover it but f1 then moves out and covers the point like it's just a mess of people moving around and they're not they're not making the proper reads 
it's not working, whatever they're doing now. So if they have a system where it's actually fundamentally the center's job to get back there and cover, that's a huge change for the Oilers. And, and I, I, like, it's simplify. It's a simple thing. It's a clear message to McDavid, Drysdale, Legion, Hopkins, McLeod, Ryan. Like, you're the man. You are. You are the third defenseman in front of that net. You know, that's your area. You will cover it. And you're going to help out these D-men. And it's fundamentally your responsibility. So no, Leon, you're not going to cruise out to the point and let, you know, Kyrie Yamamoto try to cover down there. That's that's really what we want you to do and help the, the D-men advance the puck. I don't agree with his assessment, though, that, that McDavid will be more challenged than Dreisaitl. I think um, McDavid might actually really benefit from a clear instruction. He's quite a determined hockey player. And um, I, I think he'll listen. Drysaddle is more, I, I see him as more of a freelancer on defense who likes to read the play and shift around. Mm-hmm. Um, and if he's asked to play a more disciplined role, he can definitely do it. And I think it would be a really good idea if he did do it. But it's not the, his style of play. He's a very smart hockey player who likes to do things his way and read the play. And he's good at it. He makes steals. It's more of a gambling style of play. That said, and it's successful. I mean, he's a hugely successful even strength player. He's the best even strength player on the Edmonton Oilers. So any criticism I make of him is with that in mind, like I have utmost respect for Leon as a hockey player. This would be different for him and it would Mm -hmm. be interesting to see how he handles it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we'll ever see them both on the same line. Going forward, or will that uh, become a thing in the past, or will that will he still have those little focus moments like post penalty kill or last minute of a period where he does it, or will he just simply say you're together on the power play and otherwise you're not? I think we'll see them together. I, I, I you know, he was here. Woodcroft was here when yeah. McClellan had him together and had great success. Mm-hmm. And they do have success, you know, when they were together with Yamamoto on a line last year and like it wasn't a huge sample size, but it was more than 100 minutes. They had an like an 82 percent goals for percentage. You can find chemistry with McDavid and Drysaddle on at the same time, but it does. It has in the past confused them on who's supposed to cover this defensive slot. And we've had this chaotic situation as a result. I mean, I, I just think that's this is a fundamental thing to sort out on the team. And um, well, maybe Woodcroft will simplify it enough, which I think is necessary, that it will is going to start to work better because it was not working, wasn't working. Um, I'll just he he talks about using skilled players on the PK um, mm-hmm. more often, which would be like he's saying that Benson and Marodi and Broberry play the PK in in uh, in uh, Bakersfield, and I'll just leave off with his last comment. He says, uh, "quote." Woodcroft is a data guy. He he started as a video coach and he speaks a lot about his analytics preferences. I expect big changes in player development, time on ice and, and line and D pairing matching based on his analytical analytics focus. This will uh, take time, but it will be a sea change for certain, unquote. So that's interesting. We'll see what analytics Woodcroft does. I mean, we know uh, McClellan used, look, did scoring chance data. Um, Probably, and we know that Tippett did the same thing. So I think they had a good handle analytically, actually, on their own roster. But um, there's all kinds of different methods. There's all this new data that that is confidential that we don't know about that NHL teams are privy to. The Oilers are not a heavy analytics team. I think that's obvious and fair to say. But this will this will please a lot of fans that um, he's he's more into that, more of a new wave coach. Mm-hmm. 
Bruce, what's your next? He's going to win friends by being more accessible, I think, than we've seen from uh, uh, from Tippett, just to, just in his manner, uh, Woodcroft, and he, you know, that that's uh, uh, that's going to be a welcome uh, development, I think, as well. What's your uh, next uh, one, Bruce? Yeah, Jay Fresh. Yeah, I'm just trying to find him in here. He's oh. towards the bottom. Want me to read it and you can comment on it? Uh, I'll, I'll read the I'll read the other one and then I'll get okay. to Jay Fresh's Capital, Capitals fan. Patrick C or Patrick uh, with two C's at patio underscore 36. Dave Tippett didn't trade away Ethan Bear. Dave Tippett didn't sign defenseman to Albatross contracts. Dave Tippett didn't pay a premium for an old Duncan Keith. Why is he being punished? So I think that that's an outsider's good question. Uh, I think we've already covered some of the reasons why he's uh, he's been uh, uh, let go. Uh, but he does ask good questions and makes good observations. As Dave Tippett had, you know, he's the chief cook, but he has to work with the ingredients that he was provided with. And, you know, there are weaknesses on the, on the, you know, the roster, the players available to him uh, that are attributable more to uh, the person who went out and shopped for the ingredients and brought them into Tippett's kitchen. And uh, so I guess the overriding question is, is letting go of the coach, the, you know, the be all and end all answer here, or does the, uh, answer lie further up the food chain yeah we don't know who we you know adam larson said he wanted a clean slate mm -hmm. and and maybe a different coach or gm could have pers persuaded him to stay but holland and tippet are pretty affable people i think so maybe adam larson was just going because that's the biggest loss like that was the hammer to this team if they had larson and they had signed cody cc instead of barry if you had a right mm -hmm. d of larson bouchard and cc right now this is a different hockey team Yes. Um, no Bruce, question. And they, the response they... to the Larson departure seemed knee-jerk, and it seemed like it seemed like it caught Ken Holland by surprise that Larson was leaving. And I mean, maybe Larson really did make his decision at the at the last minute, but it sounded like it was a decision that came from his heart. And those conversations should have been had, and it it. That, that happened late and the decision say well if we lost Larson we can't possibly let both of our right D let's re-sign uh, uh, Tyson Barry to a three-year deal at a nice big raise because he had a good year for us last year when they've got another you know Similar offensive player. right shot defenseman bubbling under on an entry-level contract and now that you know they've got like sort of obvious weaknesses on right defense in the defensive zone and I mean, who could have seen that coming? I think probably a lot of people. All right, I'll go to my uh, final Twitter quote. It's from Oilers fan Dill at hmm. DL Hockey 13. He says, oh my God, Tippett and Playfair out. Manson and Woodcroft in. We've all been begging this for this for a month. Soak it in Oilers fans. Rare wins like this don't happen much. <laughs> so I that I think, um, there is a huge faction of Oiler fans that are feeling this right now. Um, they're just really ecstatic that a change was made. 
And part of hockey is pleasing the fans. I mean, it's a business. So uh, on that level, I mean, you can't make your decisions just based on that. And they don't make them just based on that. Mm -hmm. But it is part of the decision. And uh, we'll see if this turns turns out to work out. What's your final quote, Bruce? Yeah, Dill's a, a he's a good follow. Like he's a he's a pretty harsh critic, but I I think he you know he 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 makes his criticisms based in you know information and how he draws conclusion lines from hockey analyst Jay Fresh at Jay Fresh Hockey. He says many legitimate reasons to want a coaching change that stem back long before December, but it's pretty much undeniable that Tipica fired for PDO as so many coaches have. Tippett, the victim of honest shooting and goaltending. Sometimes it takes the irrationality of puck luck to make the overall rational change, though. And he's certainly right. He went on to detail elsewhere that since December 2nd, uh, which was the, the dividing point of the Oilers' season, uh, that the team ranked uh, somewhere in the bottom three in the league in uh, both shooting percentage and save percentage, and also in both goals scored, well, below average or below expected, and goals saved below expected, like both at both ends of the ice. So their shots just didn't match up with the actual goals results. And you and I have seen this. I mean, obviously, in losing their last. Uh, 12 home games by a combined 47 goals to 23. They they got outscored two to one. They did not get outshot two to one. In fact, I'm not sure they got outshot at all in those games, but they were chasing those games. And so some of this data is, I mean, it's important, but it also needs context. Like score effects is a huge thing. And normally you expect that's something that's going to balance out. Well, when you're down two nothing by the three minute mark of the first period, again and again, and again, hmm, zero two already. <laughs> oh, Donna. Uh, it just hasn't seemed to be getting any better. That you know, they're 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 haven't been. They've had some bad luck, sure, but they haven't been ready at the start, and they haven't been. Uh, you know, the, the team needs a new focus because they lost the old one. Yeah, it's interesting because because according to our numbers, they're they're still getting a good number of grade A shots per game and more grade A shots per game than they're giving up. But mm-hmm. they should be giving up about four goals a game according to our numbers, and I think they are. They're giving up about four goals, a game. so that's right on track. But they should be scoring about four goals yes. a game. And what they've run into, I think, is two things: bad puck luck, just mm-hmm. it's just not getting the right bounces, and that can happen over periods of time. And hot goaltending mm-hmm. on the other teams. Mm-hmm. They've been they've been facing really strong goaltending. Seems like they they're just the other goalies come up with great saves after great saves, and we saw it again last night with Mark Andre Fleury. Um, so and his folks. so so he I think Jay Fresh makes a good point here. And again, what we don't know, uh, and he doesn't know unless he's got stats that we don't have access to, is the, the exact the exact like when you look at velocity shot placement. Everything that goes into a shot, into you know what percentage of the time it should go into the net, that's a hard thing to track, and, and uh, you know just the, the stats available to the public, they don't track that. A lot of the grade A shots, are, they 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 don't you don't even have to hit the net to be credited with a grade A shot under some systems. In ours, yeah. you do. So yeah. and and some of the shots that are credited with grade A shots under many publicly available analytic systems don't measure the velocity of the shot. 
they don't they don't they don't they can't see screens or not they don't know if there's yeah. a screen or not there's all of these factors tips you know with was it a big tip or a little tip like is it you know because some tips the puck doesn't move at all it's just it tip, hits a stick but it goes right at the goalie anyway and then others it moves dramatically so this is a very hard thing to measure yeah. we try to do it between us as best we can but it's mm-hmm. even our our measurement is fairly crude there's essentially yeah. two types of shots there's grade a shots which are above 25% according to what we see. And then there's everything below that. So, you know, it's it's kind of hard to gauge exactly what's going on. But at least according to our data, where we try to look at velocity, screens, tips, all of these different factors about what makes a good shot and a bad shot, the Oilers are seriously underperforming offensively compared to what they're actually producing on the tack in, in terms of grade A shots. They're just snake bitten. And they are facing hot goalie after hot goalie after hot goalie. And Dave Tippett could be cursing that bad luck because it is yeah. bad luck. Yeah, well, that PDO has been just brutal. I mean, their their shooting percentage is like half of the other team's shooting percentage in, in a lot of games. And, and you'd think with the, with the high-profile offensive stars that the Oilers have that that shouldn't be a problem, that they should be able creating better than average scoring chances and that they should actually have a positive PDO, but they, that just hasn't been working. And I mean, part of it is, you know, that their, their top guys are slumping to some extent. And I mean, some of that's chicken and egg. I mean, are they slumping because, you know, they're not getting the bounces or, but clearly they're off their game. I would say that especially they're two big guys for, for a while now, and especially with David, to be frank. Um, yeah, but it's um, it's gone on too long. I mean, this slide happened on December 5th. This is now February 9th. And, you know, it, and there was a, a brief correction. Uh, but even in that time, you know, like they beat Montreal. You know, they were lucky to beat Washington. You know, they, they got there. Very, you know, the goalie stole the win against Calgary. They had to come back hard against to beat Vancouver when they were down a few players. And, you know, there was no sort of convincing, hey, we won this game because we're better than those guys, full stop, unless you want to talk about the Montreal game, in which case being better, better than Montreal this year is a very low bar. Well, Bruce, I think we've covered the ground here. The, mm. the map and the territory somewhat so let's uh let's leave it there and let's let's see what happens next thanks for unless you have a final comment any final thought that you want to make that you haven't uh, uh just that jay woodcroft and and um dave manson have a lot of work to do and not a whole lot of time in which to do it like with uh well 40 games in 81 days there's not a lot of practice ice in there you know, when you get a two days off between games, almost certainly one of them is going to be a CBA mandated day off. And so they're going to have to do a lot of their work in the room, video meetings and that sort of thing. But uh, more power to them. I mean, they're they're uh, they've proven themselves. The coaches have as NHL ready, I think. And here's their big shot. Go for it. Good luck. I, I just wonder with systems play. I mean, these players have all played many systems. Through the years, they've played from numerous coaches at a high level. Every single one of these players, they've played probably, you know, a dozen different systems, you know, like they just so. And it's something that it's 
you know, you can show on a board. You, okay, you cover here when the puck's there. You, like, it's not, you don't have to do it on the ice necessarily. So it's something that I think they can institute fairly quickly. It's just a matter of getting, then working with the, having the players do it, having them believe in the system that they've, they've brought in and execute it. And that's the challenge. I don't think it is actually in learning the system because they're, these aren't, it's not rocket science. I mean, there's only so many things you can do on the ice with hockey players. And what they're talking about isn't that complicated. But what is hard is getting getting people to actually do it and to do it well. And to, to make within that system then to make the correct reads because your head's on a swivel and you're alert and you're, you're, it's your job one and you understand that. That's the challenge. I think it's more of an attitudinal shift uh, in terms of defensive play, which will, which is going to be needed, and um, we'll see if we can get it. We'll see what his persuasion skills are in terms of dealing with these elite hockey players. Yeah, buy-in from the leadership group is the single biggest question, I think. Uh, if yeah, Woodcroft can get that. This team does have the the talent and wherewithal that to uh, uh, turn things around. Um, but uh, they need a new approach, and they're going to have the opportunity now to get one. And hopefully, their uh, uh, their big star players uh, will uh, will buy in, buy in and set the example and and uh, and lead the way. That's what the that's what the Oilers need them to do. Completely agree, Bruce. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens next. It's part of it's all part of the fun. This is uh, yeah tomorrow night. Thanks for talking, Bruce. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.